And not only did he have a relationship with the government, but he had a mole in the FBI. In this world, you look out for number one. Few, if any, people take that oath to the grave. These guys are on the streets, so they're involved in, in hustling. Welcome into the Original Gangsters podcast, another uh, hot button episode with uh, myself, Scott Bernstein, your host, Jimmy Bucciolato. Hello. And Roberto Beauchene behind the glass on the uh, wheels of steel. This week, we're going to we're gonna uh, jump into the evergreen topic of Jimmy Hoffa, um, the Jimmy Hoffa uh, disappearance and murder, which is coming up on its 44th anniversary, uh, America's most beloved unsolved mystery, most iconic unsolved mystery, and it, it, it's really embedded in the fabric of Metro Detroit, which is uh, uh, home base for, for myself, Jimmy Bucciolato, and, and Roberto Boshane. We're pleased to welcome aboard for uh, this podcast uh, Keith Corbett, who is a, uh, a former U.S. prosecutor, U.S. attorney, was one of the preeminent crime, uh, crime fighters in Detroit over the last half century. Uh, you know, the definition of a uh, resilient mob buster, someone that was uh, a thorn on the side of the Toko Zerilli crime family for, for 30 plus years, was very uh, prominent in the uh, Jimmy Hoffa investigation uh, as it got, you know, kind of cooler um, throughout the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. And then we're also going to welcome aboard Mike Carone, a retired FBI agent that worked organized crime in Detroit uh, for 30 years as well, and uh, intimately. Um, involved in the uh, investigation of uh, major members of the Detroit crime family that were linked to the Hoffa assassination, the Jackaloni brothers, Jack Toko, um, etc. Uh, well, welcome aboard, guys. Thanks for, uh, for thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And you guys have carte blanche to jump in at any point, and uh, you know. Well, we're both very shy. Give your hindsight to everybody. So, so that'll be difficult. <laughs> So uh, just let's give like a quick 30-second to a minute primer, Jimmy Hoffa, for, for some of the youngsters, um, one of the most recognizable people probably in the world um, at the peak of his power as the president of the Teamsters Union um, in the uh, late 50s through the 1960s, uh, was, a, uh, was born in Indiana, came to uh, the city of Detroit when he was a young boy and, and, and was, was, was raised in Detroit, uh, cut his teeth on the docks. Uh, of the Kroger uh, Grocery Company, uh, unloading produce and, and made his name as a uh, as someone who was um, organizing labor back in his twenties. Organized what was known as the Strawberry Strike on the Kroger docks. Uh, that really uh, established him as as an up and comer in, in the labor union ranks. Eventually went over to the Teamsters, uh, aligned with organized crime, and really rode the coattails of organized crime into the Teamsters presidency in 1957. Uh, was really at the a lot of his power was at the behest of organized crime, and since he was a, a Detroit um, resident, the Detroit crime family w- w- were his contacts, the Jackaloni brothers specifically, and he eventually ends up going to prison in 1967 for bribery, uh, jury tampering, um, and fraud, and eventually ends up getting out of that prison sentence early uh, via a pardon from the Nixon White House. So he comes out of prison, I believe, uh, Christmas 1971, having served almost five years. What he doesn't know, uh, or allegedly he doesn't know, was that uh, he part of the pardon that he had signed and agreed to had barred him for running 
for the Teamsters presidency again. He had been forced to relinquish that presidency to his vice president, Frank Fitzsimmons, who was a lot easier to deal with for the mob, a lot uh, less... Um, a lot less ambitious, someone that wasn't as power hungry, someone that was um, easier to manipulate. And after having Frank Fitzsimmons uh, as their contact with the Teamsters uh, presidency for, for about five years, they didn't want to return to Jimmy Hoffa. So they told Jimmy Hoffa that they didn't want him to run for the presidency again, which would have been in 1976. And they kind of slid in this uh, this part um, part and parcel of the pardon, it, barring him for, for running for office. So. He gets out of prison in 19, let's say, early 1972, and for the next three years is just hell-bent on taking back the Teamsters presidency. And at this point, it, it aligns him uh, or, or it puts him uh, in an adversarial posture against the organized crime, uh, uh, members of organized crime that he had, he had ridden to, to power. But what so, does that mean? Like he, So he's spending these years getting contacts back or influencing? I don't want to want to open this up to well, uh, Keith and Mike. Yeah, one thing you might want to mention for the younger viewers or listeners again is that uh, there was a real personal animosity between Bobby Kennedy, who was the Attorney General of the United States, and Jimmy Hoffa. In fact, uh, Kennedy made it his goal in life to uh, to get Hoffa in jail. There was even a story I read once where. The uh, Kennedy was working in his office, and it was uh, like 1 o'clock in the morning, and the lights were still on in Maine Justice. And somebody said to him, what are you still doing? And he pointed to the Teamsters headlights, he had headquarters with the lights running. He said, hey, lights are in there. Keep Jimmy Hoffa out of jail. I'm here to get him in jail. So he was a politically polarizing figure, not only in terms of— uh, of the organized of, of labor union and and the organized crime family in uh, in Detroit, but also in terms of the national focus of the organized crime and racketeering section in D.C., which was essentially created by Bobby Kennedy and continued until in most places until the late 90s. And uh, when Hoffa got out of jail, he began his plans to uh, reinsert himself into the Teamster Union, and he. He thought it was going to take him some time. He was still extremely popular with the membership. I mean, he was much more popular than Frank Fitzsimmons ever was. And he had put Fitzsimmons in to hold the seat for him. And keep, it, keep it warm. Fitzsimmons decided he liked it. So Hoffa was a little shocked when Fitzsimmons didn't readily acquiesce to his plans to uh, to reinsert himself as president of the IBT. And then, uh, and then he found out there was a legal bar to it, and he began— machinations to get around that, both legal in terms of trying to see if he could modify the terms of his pardon or legally challenge them, and also uh, in terms of people he knew and political influence he might be in a position to wield. A lot of people thought he, Nixon let him out because the Teamsters were going to endorse Nixon for the presidency. And, you know, this puts Hoffa, uh, you know, on an, on an opposite, you know, p puts him... In a uh, you know in a war against the same mobsters that had put him into power, and this was something that was kind of simmering and brewing through the early '70s, right. where it was getting more acrimony. Uh, there was more acrimony that was building over the years, more bitterness, uh, till everything kind of uh, the the powder had exploded in in the summer of '75. Right, and I think Mike could talk. There were a lot of investigations in Detroit into the mob influence into the. Uh, Central State, Southeast, Southwest Area Pension Fund, which was controlled by Jimmy Hoffa, by the Teamsters local, and had 
huge amounts of cash. And Mike can speak to you as to some of the investigative uh, efforts that the Bureau undertook in looking into that and some of the people who appeared to be involved in uh, chicanery in terms of uh, the uh, access to the assets of the uh, Central State Southeast-Southwest Area Pension Fund. Hey, hey Mike, why don't you come in here and kind of tell us, uh, you you got to the FBI office in Detroit uh, in the mid-'70s. You're a a guy from the East Coast from New Jersey. Kind of talk about landing in Detroit and and getting a— an understanding of the landscape that was here. I, I think you started your job uh, about six months before Hoffa disappeared. So, kind of talk about the the lead up. Uh, what was the climate like here? What was the um, what did you sense was the uh, situation that was that was that was percolating between Hoffa and, and the Detroit organized crime family that you were uh, you know in charge of, of of monitoring? Sure. Yeah, I got here six months after Hoffa was uh, had disappeared in February of 76, and um, uh, I was initially assigned to, uh, as a new guy, chasing fugitives and deserters and things like that, but it became apparent um, uh, every week they had a briefing about the, the Hoff investigation. It was called Hoffex, and um, uh, the uh, lead agents uh, would uh, come and give a uh, uh, succinct uh, briefing about uh, leads that have been covered, uh, the latest uh, intel on the case. And it was an entire office uh, meeting because, uh, obviously, it was uh, one of the biggest cases in the Bureau, certainly the biggest case in the uh, Detroit Division. Well, just, just, so, he did, so he disappeared, just to let people know, he disappeared on uh, the afternoon of July 30th, 1975, uh, right. from a parking lot at the corner of Telegraph and Maple Road in Bloomfield Township, Michigan. And uh, the, the mystery has been unraveling ever since. So go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Right. And um, I, uh, during these briefings that they had, um, they'd always show a picture of Jimmy Hoffa and uh, said, if you can find this guy dead or alive, I guarantee you, this is a case agent, I guarantee you the Bureau will send you wherever you want to go, uh, no matter how much time you had. And uh, at, at that time, it was a seniority thing. If you wanted to get to... Uh, a nice office, uh, San Diego, uh, Atlanta, someplace you wanted to go. Um, if you could find out anything about Jimmy Hoffa, they'd send you there. So it was, it was a, a real big push to, uh, to find him. Um, and uh, I think if you read through the files and the investigative work that was done, uh, they, they really did uh, turn over every stone and uh, uh, look under every, uh, every rock uh, for, for him. Um, uh, as a sidelight, my dad was an agent in uh, Newark at that time, and he was one of the ones who went out to Giant Stadium uh, when they uh, had some type of tip that uh, I think Hoffa was uh, buried under the uh, 30 uh, 30-yard line or 25-yard line or something like that. And he had he gone out to the Meadowlands digging up uh, uh, gangster uh, uh, bodies out there, uh, always hoping that uh, Jimmy Hoffa would show up, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, so there was uh, this emphasis in the office. It was quite apparent, and um, uh, any uh, leads that came in were assigned to uh, uh, senior agents. Uh, I did tag along on some of the leads and eventually ended up on a surveillance squad about a year and a half after um, getting there, and uh, the majority of our work was uh, uh, related to the Hoffa case, specifically Jack Aloney's 
uh, Tony and Billy Giacalone. Um Billy was probably somebody that um, was there uh, when Hoffa was uh, uh, kidnapped and uh, uh, murdered. Um, and they think that uh, the reason would be uh, somebody from <clears throat> Detroit would have to be there because of where the uh, uh, event occurred and the fact that um, uh, Hoffa was uh, was you know from the area from Detroit. So just to give some um, some people a little more background, uh, the Jackaloni brothers were the the faces of organized crime in Detroit uh, from the 1950s all the way into the 2000s. They were the street bosses. Um, older brother Tony Jack Jackaloni and his younger brother Vito Billy Jack Jackaloni. Uh, they were also acting as the conduits for Hoffa uh, to communicate with members of organized crime and for members of organized crime to c- communicate with Hoffa and what was going on in the Teamsters. So the day Hoffa disappeared on July 30th, 1975, he was on his way to a lunch meeting with Tony Giacalone and Billy Giacalone, his brother, was nowhere to be found. He had uh, ditched his state police surveillance unit and was unaccounted for that entire day. So uh, – Tell me if I'm right, Mike. There was a lot of people that were investigating the case that believed that, kind of like what you just said, that Tony had assigned his brother Billy uh, to be the Detroit mob's representative on the actual hit. Right. Yeah, I was. I was just. Uh, you stole my thunder there. Oh, sorry, Mike. Talk about. <laughs> just going to talk about how the state police, um, their uh, surveillance unit, that uh, was, uh, was called Mint M I N T, um, had followed Billy around uh, just to see uh, where he was going, who he was meeting. And then after following around, they would break off uh, and follow the people that uh, he had met, figuring that he had given them some orders, and uh, they were following uh, them to see what uh, what orders he was giving them. Uh, you know, basically the mob at that time was into shylocking, uh, extortionate credit transactions, illegal gambling, things like that. Um, but on that particular day, they went out to find Billy. I lived over in Gross Point, and... Uh, they couldn't find him, and uh, which was not, you know, any big deal. Obviously, if they knew what was going to happen later that afternoon, they maybe would have tried to find him. But um, uh, they they just uh, had other things to do, and um, uh, never saw him. And his whereabouts to to this day are still a mystery. Um, uh, we debriefed uh, informants over the years. Anytime you had a case where somebody was getting ready to go to jail. You tell him you dangle that get out of jail free card uh, of Jimmy Hoffa. Show him the picture and say, "Look, do you know anything about this guy, or what happened to him?" And we can verify it. Uh, it's probably going to do you a lot of good. Um, I did that with, uh, uh, with and uh, Keith will remember the case with uh, John and Sonia and uh, uh, Bill uh, Bob Newman and um, uh, working these uh, uh, people associated with the Jackalones. And uh, while people would give us stories, they, they never really panned out. And um, it, it was too bad because, um, obviously, it's still uh, an unsolved mystery. I think if uh, if the gangsters in Detroit, none of them are around anymore, but if they had to... Uh, excuse me, I'm in, I'm in Milwaukee near the Harley-Davidson factory, and they go by every once in a while. That's what you hear in the background. Um, uh, I think they leave them uh, laying in the middle of Telegraph Road, yeah. and then we, then it would be a, a local murder case and not not a federal case. Uh, one thing to keep in mind: um, people who were associated with uh, 
this uh, his disappearance. Uh, while uh, nobody's really charged with anything, uh, they really stirred up the interest of the federal government, um, a la Bobby Kennedy's uh, interest in the Teamsters. And most of these guys, Tony Provenzano, Jack Aloni's, uh, if they didn't end up dead, like um, uh, uh, some of the guys from New York that came out here, <clears throat> uh, they ended up in jail. Tony Pro died in jail. Um, uh, Jack Aloni's caught uh, probably three or four different cases uh, after Hoffa's disappearance. So they brought a lot of heat upon themselves, which I don't think they really thought about uh, that that was going to be the result of uh, – him disappearing. I mean, obviously, it's over 40 years now, and uh, it's still generating news. And I guarantee you, if there was ever another dig, there was just a dig a couple weeks ago in, in Hillsdale, Michigan. So it didn't get oh, a lot. Really? Yeah, it didn't get a lot of publicity, but there was a uh, a, a search like yeah. two weeks ago. Along with Mike's point, I, I remember one time uh, after. Peter Vitale was convicted of an extortion case. He's another Detroit, uh, very infamous Detroit mobster. I'm riding down in the elevator. I'm a young prosecutor. I still had dark hair then. And uh, I'm riding down the elevator with him, and I said, you know, Mr. Vitale, I can keep you out of jail. And he looks at me and he says, how? I said, just tell me what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. And he looks at me and he says, I don't rat out my friends. Not, I don't know what you're well, talking yeah, about. Pete, Pete, I don't rat out my friends. Bozzy, they called him Bozzy. Bozzy Vitale was uh, one of the main suspects in the disposal aspect of the Hoffa body. People believe that um, he was in charge. Him and his partner, Jimmy Quasarano, were in charge of, of, of getting rid of Hoffa's uh, remains. And then there was a FBI surveillance in New York that uh, caught uh, Vitale and Quasarano going to visit a very prominent uh, New York mobster by the name of Fat Tony Salerno at his social club about three or four days after Hoffa disappeared uh, in Harlem to kind of uh, have a meeting of the minds between the, the New York family and the De Detroit family to discuss what had happened. And Jimmy Quasarano was affectionately known as Jimmy the Goon. Jimmy the Goon. <laughs> so just to uh, give some added context, we've been throwing some names out talking about New York, New Jersey, Tony Provenzano. So... In order to get uh, Jimmy Hoffa uh, set up to be murdered, they needed to find some way to lure him um, out into the open. Uh, at that point, he was feuding with a, a New Jersey mobster by the name of Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano, who was a, a capo regime in the Genovese crime family, ran the, the Genovese's uh, New Jersey operations. And Hoffa and Provenzano had once been very close friends, had been allies. Hoffa had gotten Provenzano uh into the union and, and helped his rise uh, on the East Coast through uh, labor union circles. But while they were both in prison together in the late 60s, they got into a, a, a very big fight over Teamsters insurance benefits that Hoffa's family was getting and Provenzano's family wasn't. Um, they actually had to be separated uh, in the mess hall at Lewisburg Penitentiary where they were uh, literally grabbing each other by the throat, trying to choke each other to death. Um, and Hoffa knew that if he was going to take back the Teamsters presidency in 1976, he had to bury the hatchet with Provenzano because Provenzano controlled all the union delegates on the East Coast. And for Hoffa to take back the presidency, he needed he needed those delegates. So uh, Provenzano was actually related to Tony Giacalone via marriage. Giacalone's wife was a Provenzano, and I believe Tony Pro uh, was her uncle. So. It made sense to Jimmy Hoffa that Tony Giacalone and Billy Giacalone were coming to him in July of 75 and, and, and saying to him, hey, Jimmy, uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of uh, 
a, a, to, to smooth smooth some of the groundwork and and, and lay some of the, the the foundation for you to take back the Teamsters Union. We're going to help you out, even though we've been telling you we weren't. And we're going to set up a, a lunch meeting with Tony Provenzano in Detroit. Um, he's coming in town for a wedding. There was a big wedding that was being hosted at the end of that week, I believe August 2nd, 1975, that you had a number of mob luminaries from around the country that would be descending on Metro Detroit. So Hoffa knew there was a reason for Tony Pro coming into town and the Jackalones had him believe that Provenzano was willing to, uh, you know, sit down and and get past their differences and and and, and swing over his support over to Hoffa uh, uh, for for his run to to take back the Teamsters presidency. So that was where we where, where Tony Provenzano plays into this, where the New Jersey Genovese crime family plays into this, and then I just mentioned Fat Tony Salerno, who was the boss of the Genovese crime family in New York. Just as a, uh, a sidelight, uh, it gives you a little insight into Hoffa. There aren't too many people that would be willing while in prison to get into a physical altercation with a guy they knew was a made member of the mob. Who was a killer. Right. But Jimmy Hoffa was that kind of a tough guy, and he wouldn't back down from anybody. And, and I think that tells you a lot about what kind of a person he was. Most people would— uh, And this was a guy that he had once been very close friends right, with. Right. But most people would say, hey, he's he's not the kind of guy you want to take on, but Hoffa didn't care. But at the end of the day, he's going to meet on July 30th that afternoon at a restaurant that was called The Red Fox. It's now on Diamo uh, at the corner of Telegraph and Maple. And he was going to meet Tony Provenzano, Tony Giacalone, and neither of them were there. Uh, Tony Giacalone was— uh, at his headquarters, the Southland Athletic Club, on an Evergreen, about a 10-minute drive from uh, the Red Fox. And Tony Provenzano was, by all accounts, at his uh, Teamsters headquarters in Jersey City, and, or Union City, New Jersey. And Tony Giacalone, who was, by all accounts, kind of a surly, unapproachable guy, spent most of the day in the Southfield Athletic Club going up to anybody he could find and said, Do you know what time it is? I don't have my watch. So... <laughs> <laughs> he had a number of uh, of people who said, well, yeah, Mr. Giacalone asked me what time it was at 12. He was establishing an alibi. Absolutely. At 1.15, at 1.30, all those kinds of things. Let me ask you uh, both, Keith and Mike, about the whereabouts of Vito Giacalone, also known as Billy Jack. How common was it for someone like that to evade surveillance? You said the state police lost him, couldn't find him. How common is that for a surveillance team to lose someone like that? And, and how do they do that? Well, I, I, I don't think it was. Um, it, I mean, I, I did a lot of surveillance work, and normally what will happen is you, you'll have a weekly schedule of uh, uh, who you're going to work on, and then you also have a, a secondary schedule. So if you go out in the morning uh, to look for the guy, you already know what his uh, habits are, what time he leaves home, uh, where he usually goes um, with a guy like uh, Billy, uh, a lot of times they would go to the um, um, uh, what's the uh, uh, country club over there in um, Hillcrest. Hillcrest. Hillcrest, right? Yeah, you would go to Hillcrest, or maybe you'd go to a coffee shop. He would go to Southfield Athletic Club quite a bit. So if you didn't, Easter, find he was home, down in Eastern Market a lot, right? Too. Eastern Market, yeah. There, there were certain places where, where they would hang out and meet people. And uh, so it, if you didn't see them uh, or couldn't find them, uh, it, no big deal. I mean, if you knew there was something going to happen that day, obviously you would look for them and uh, uh, probably get out there early in the morning before you even left 
so you wouldn't miss him. But um, it, it, it wouldn't be that unusual not to find him that day. And they probably went on to a secondary target and, um, you know, didn't think anything of it. Um, one thing I, uh, I will say about Billy, he was not really too worried about surveillance, I don't think. Um, he didn't drive slow. He didn't drive fast. He didn't do a lot of, you know, extracurricular maneuvers. Uh, Diversionary tactics. Uh, yeah, just, you know, he wasn't, wasn't that hard to, to follow. And most of the time, you knew where he was going. He'd take the same route. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you could even back off and feel comfortable that he was going to Easter Market or South Athletic Club and just wait for him to show up and not even not even follow him over there. At Eastern Market, uh, he had a, a headquarters called uh, Farm Fresh Produce, right. and uh, he was famous for holding uh, sit-downs and meetings in, in meat lockers because he knew they couldn't bug the meat lockers. And, and one thing you have to understand is, you know, despite the impressions people get from TV, I think Mike's pointing it out, the manpower to run a 24-hour-a-day surveillance on somebody is just incredible and Absent some predication where you have a reason to believe something is imminently going to happen, so you set up on a guy, you, you do exactly that. You show up, see if we can find him today. There was no expectation on July 29th that something was going to happen to Jimmy Hoffa. There was no expectation that we should pay, pay any unusual amount of attention to uh, either of the Jackalones. And, yeah, we were watching them, but... Uh, you know, you pick them up, you don't pick them up. Uh, there was no direct reason. Sometimes you do have that. You maybe have a wiretap on or you suspect somebody of being involved in criminal activity. And that, at that time, you may ramp up the uh, the surveillance efforts. But the manpower requirements are, are incredible, and you just can't afford to do it. Can you guys talk a little bit about what you were hearing about the relationship between Hoffa and the Jackalones? I mean, how close they, how close were they? How much were they socializing together? What what was the kind of d- dynamic between the, the three of them? Well, well, like Mike, I mean, I was actually in Michigan at the time. I was actually an assistant prosecuting attorney in Oakland County. I was not uh, working for the U.S. government at the time, and I did not have any specialized uh, knowledge. I was fascinated when Jimmy disappeared because it was also a ca- case that the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office was working. So it happened in Oakland County. Right. But I, uh, I you know, uh, later on came to know that there was a longstanding, and it, from reading intelligence reports and documents later on, a longstanding relationship between the Jackalones and uh Jimmy Hoffa and another guy that whose name may come up here, Chucky O'Brien. And they were all associates of each other, and those relationships went from sometimes very warm and close to other times where they were more attenuated and difficult. And, and Chucky O'Brien was Hoffa's surrogate son. That's, that's a, a term that they yeah. used, right. He right. was kind of adopted by Hoffa as a young man and raised and groomed to kind of become a, a, a Teamsters leader as well. But by the time 1975 hits, Hoffa and O'Brien are not on speaking terms because Hoffa, or sorry, because O'Brien has kind of sided with the mafia, has sided with the Jackalones against his surrogate father in his surrogate father's quest to take back the Well, yeah, I mean, Chucky was trying to keep himself together while Jimmy was in jail, and and he uh, went to work as a BA for the Teamsters business agent, and uh, it was more important at that time to be on the good side of the Jackalones who were out and about in Detroit than it was to be on the good side of Jimmy Hoffa. 
And uh, when Jimmy came back, there was, again, as I said, the relationship between them went from warm at times to very distant and, and uh, strained at other times. And it was just a function of uh, what time in the calendar and where they were. For instance, at this point in time, as Jimmy is attempting to get back into the Teamsters Union, the relationship with the Jackalones was not the best either because they were afraid that Jimmy's efforts to get himself back in were going to adversely impact organized crime. Well, and Hoffa was telling everyone that would listen that not only was he going to take back the Teamsters presidency, but he was going to take back the presidency and then rid rid the Teamsters of organized crime influence. So he was kind of going against uh, you know the platform that he had run on right. earlier. Yeah. Because, <laughs> is, you know, is, there, is there sort of a delusion there, do you think? Like... Why don't you speak to that, uh, Mike or, or Keith? Well, I think I, I think one of the, the issues that uh, uh, came up too was that the uh, uh, Jacklonis, Provenzano, at all, they were concerned that that Hoffa either was or had uh, uh, talked to the grand jury, and uh, that he was going to be testifying against uh, them in order to get uh, consideration to come back into the uh, Teamster Union to get that ban lifted. I don't think that was ever. Uh, true, but it really doesn't matter if they thought it was true. Uh, that could have been a uh, number one reason why they said, you know, this guy's got to go. And um, uh, I, I think that was probably, uh, if Hoffa knew that that was uh, uh, a rumor, he probably didn't do anything to dispel it, obviously, to his detriment. Um, one, one thing you talked about, wiretaps. Um, over the years since his disappearance, uh, Detroit Division had a number of wiretaps, uh, consensual monitoring, uh, Title III uh, 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 intercepts in uh, uh, microphones placed in various uh, businesses, vehicles, things like that. One thing that these guys, uh, whether it was the Jackalones or associates, uh, they never talked about the Hoffa case. They never talked about uh, it, just like we're doing now, sitting around. Uh, shooting a breeze about it, and uh, what do you think happened? You know what? Even if even if there's uh, uh, guys who are uh, associates or hangers on, uh, and you pick them up on uh, uh, recordings uh, around, you know, the anniversaries. Uh, I remember that um, Jerry Stanicky, the Newshawk, did a, um, a cassette tape around the twenty. I think it may have been the twentieth or twenty-fifth anniversary of the. Uh, half of disappearance because he was a big uh, investigative reporter back then on this. And um, uh, they, they had a cassette tape that uh, found its way to um, to Billy and uh, in the hopes that he would listen to it. And uh, he never did. <laughs> what does that tell you, Mike, that they weren't and, talking and about it? That, that there were very few people that knew and that it was just something that, you know, which is surprising that they um, uh, that that they they could keep a secret. Even when we had uh, Chucky O'Brien and um, Billy together, uh, they they never discussed they never discussed it. And um, so obviously the word was uh, was out there that you know this this thing is just uh, it's over it's done and uh, we're not gonna not gonna uh, talk about it. There's a lot of people uh, that believe that Chucky O'Brien was driving the car that drove right. Hoffa to where he was killed. Um, there was an eye, some type of eyewitness identification from the parking lot of the Red Fox. Um, yeah. The car was owned by Tony Giacalone's son, 
uh, Joseph Joey Jack Jackaloni, who at the time I believe was only 21 or 22. Now he's in his late 60s and I believe is a, believed to be a reputed member of organized crime, uh, an alleged capo regime in the Detroit Mafia. Um, and his uh, 1975 Mercury Marquis, uh, maroon-colored Mercury Marquis, is the only piece of physical evidence ever collected in the Hoffa investigation. It was seized a couple weeks after uh, Hoffa disappeared, and I believe to this day it is in the evidence locker in the McNamara building in downtown Detroit. Like I said, the only piece of evidence that's ever been able to have been uh, collected, uh, physical evidence, other than I believe some DNA swabs that were able to confirm that Hoffa uh, was in the backseat of that Mercury Marquis as well as the trunk. Yeah, I think they found some uh, hairs, uh, a pair, and and uh, which uh, was human hair. Um, yeah, he would. You know, everybody would tell you that he would not get into a vehicle um, with anybody that he didn't know, and he wouldn't go very far. Um, I know that um, there was some talk about him going down to. Uh, I think they're making this movie now, yeah. uh, coming out this fall. That uh, I hear you paint houses. That that was down in. Um, uh, down Telegraph Road, but down, I think, it was off seven Maloney miles. Or, or Redford and yeah. that area. Um, I don't know that he would go down that far uh, with uh, with anybody, especially since he was supposed to meet uh, Tony Pro at the restaurant and um, uh, to go any further. It would have been about a twenty. It would have been about a twenty minute drive. I don't think Hoffa would have felt comfortable uh, in that no, situation. No. Right. Um, yeah. And Scott, you and I talked about a place. Uh, about three miles up the road, Carlo Licata's house, yeah. which which uh, uh, sat off the road off of uh, uh, eighteen mile and uh, off of Long uh, Lake. Long, off of Long Lake Road, uh, right on around the uh, Long Lake and Telegraph uh, Lasser, uh, intersection. By yeah. Lasser, yeah, between yeah. Telegraph and Lasser, and he had a um, uh, uh, Carlo was uh, uh, related to the uh, L.A. mob, and uh, he married into uh, the Detroit mob family, right into. Uh, uh, Toko's family, I believe. Yep. And um, but what was interesting about the house it was uh, uh, up up on a little bit of a rise, but it had a uh, a garage that was uh, built in underneath the house, so you could pull right into the garage and go right up into the house. It was a uh, an attached type uh, 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 setup, and there's some thought that um, uh, Tony or that uh, Hoffa may have been taken there. Because it was close, and he would have been familiar with uh, uh, with that area and with Lakata, um, and uh, and and maybe that's where they took him and uh, uh, and dealt with him there. But um, no Title Three intercepts that I'm familiar with that I sat on or that I reviewed uh, or informants that I talked to. Uh, we we would even tickle the wire occasionally. We'd go out and uh, uh, have wiretaps make arrests. Talk to people about the um, Hoffa investigation. Tell people, like Keith was saying, you're going to go to jail, but if you tell us about what you know, we can verify it and uh, uh, maybe we can help you out. Um, and uh, and the wire would still be up on these guys when they got back. I think we have something, uh, if I can jump in, I, sorry to interrupt, but we have something that you said that's very newsworthy, I think, here, which is. The, the central premise of this film, The Irishman, which is coming out, Scorsese film, which probably will be a, a fun film and we'll watch it. But the central premise of that is that Hoffa was taken to this location uh, on the west side of Detroit and executed Northwest, there. Northwest side. Uh, and um, we have 
an FBI agent who was active during that investigation um, debunking <laughs> that that theory. So I think that I just for listeners, I want to make sure that that's not lost on them, that that was a really huge piece of information you just shared with us. So I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, Mike. No, that's OK. Um, and um, uh, like I said, we would even tickle the wire uh, uh, with with arrests and with interviews about Hoffa or going out and um, uh, just kind of shaking the bushes a little bit to see if it would generate conversation. And like I say, over the 30 years I was there, that, ne- that never never did anything, never never bore any fruit. And um, and uh, it was pretty surprising that nobody ever discussed uh, what happened. Keith. And, uh, even, even, you know, just uh, macho BS bar talk, nothing. Keith, can you kind of talk about your... Uh... What's your perspective on, on the theory that was um, given by Frank Sheeran, uh, who was nicknamed the Irishman? He was an East Coast teamster that was affiliated with Jimmy Hoffa. He was a, uh, a mob hitman. Um, he wrote a book in 2004 where well, actually someone wrote a book on his behalf, and he made a deathbed confession before that book came out. I believe he made the confession in late 03. The book came out in 04. Um, it was written by an author by the name of Charlie Brandt, who had been uh, Frank Sheeran's lawyer. And in the book, Sheeran claims that he uh, was present when Hoffa was killed at this house on Beaverland in northwest Detroit, and that he was the one that put the two bullets into the back of Jimmy's head. I, I don't know. I mean, Mike and I haven't talked about this, but in my opinion, uh, I don't believe that. Um, this had to be uh, one of the most important hits, kidnappings, whoever you want to categorize it, by the mob. Uh, and, and as Mike said, I don't think they realized the long-term consequences in terms of federal law enforcement uh, heat on them. But they certainly realized that uh, there was going to be a tremendous amount of heat at the time Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. And I don't see, given—and we have to set this up in time. The, the people we're talking about are old-time mobsters. They're not the— uh, kids uh, who went to uh, Gross Point Leggett and uh, University of Michigan, they're, they're, they're old-time, hard-nosed guys. And if they decided, and I think this is the way it probably went, if it was the people from New Jersey that wanted to whack them, they had to come to Detroit and get the permission of the Detroit organized crime family to do it here in Detroit. And I'm 100% sure every guy involved was a made member of organized crime. They weren't going to trust anybody outside. And even in that context, they kept the, uh, the, the pool of people involved to the absolute minimum. And the, uh, the indication of their success is the fact that uh, it's never been uh, solved. The case is not solved today. I think almost everybody involved is dead. I don't know if there's anybody alive today who knows what happened. But the people who knew... Uh, were a very select group of people. And I personally believe they were all made members of the LCN. I don't believe that uh, they would have... Why? You can't get another guy instead of Frank Sheeran. He didn't have the the credentials to be a mob guy. We had a witness one time testify here in Detroit who was an Italian guy by the name of Salvatello that he wanted to become a member of the mob and they wouldn't let him be a member of the Detroit Mafia because he wasn't born in Sicily. Not because he wasn't Italian, but he wasn't Sicilian. They were not going to share this with somebody who was, albeit I'm Irish, uh, 
you know, occasionally some of those guys drink a little and maybe say things they shouldn't say. I just never bought that story from the word go. Well, right. I don't so, know about uh, well, but what about when you're Chucky O'Brien too, though? Right. I so, mean, I I don't. Think, there's less of a chance that Chucky O'Brien was involved than Sheeran being involved. Right. I don't think Chucky was involved either. Uh, I, they Chucky, wouldn't trust him with a loaf of bread, let right. alone a mob assassination. He's not the kind of guy you want. You want a guy who. In the, in the words of Pete Vitale, I don't rat out my friends. You know, I'm not telling you anything about anything. But Chucky wasn't a tough guy either. No, mean, no. And he was someone that was incredibly <laughs> unreliable and not trusted in the same way that Sheeran is. If you talk to people, mobsters that were dealing with Frank Sheeran day-to-day basis back in the 70s and 80s, which I have, they all say the guy was a, a, a blowhard, a liar, and a drunk. Um, and then you talk to the Detroit mobsters in this area and you bring up this theory. They're offended. They're like, you don't think we can take care of our own house clean? We got to bring in a guy from Delaware? Because uh, Frank Sheeran was running a Teamsters local in Delaware. Right. And, and, you know, the mob used to do things like they would bring people over here, stick them working in a pizzeria in New York City with no papers for 10 years. They got them in. And someday they'd say to them, hey, you go out to Milwaukee and shoot this guy. And then you go back to the pizzeria tomorrow. And that, that's a perfect hitman. He does one thing. You don't, he's never been in Milwaukee before. He's never going to be there again. They didn't need Frank Sheeran, uh, you know, you paint houses, don't you? I mean, they might have let him paint that house <laughs> as far as it goes. So, so who would—let's think about—so then it's already been established that, that Hoffa has stood up at the restaurant. So he's leaving. He shows at, up at the at, restaurant at 2 but, it's, it's a two o'clock meeting, right? And these, he's there's eyewitnesses that identify him there between two thirty and two thirty. He, he's driving. Hoffa's car was he, there, yeah, himself. He, he right. came from Lake Orion, uh, where his house was. He stopped in Pontiac uh, to meet with uh, uh, an associate of his named Louis Linto. Right. Um, Linto wasn't there. He left Linto's. Uh, I believe it was a transportation business in Pontiac where right. he rented limos or something. Limo company, yeah. Then uh, showed up at the Red Fox at two o'clock for a two o'clock meeting, right. and then and talked to people. There's eyewitnesses. Yeah. Multiple and eyewitnesses. Used a uh, payphone. Is that yeah? Used true? a payphone at the strip mall behind right. the restaurant. Called his wife at about two forty-five. Told her that she had been stood up. That he was going to go to the grocery store and pick up some steak so he could grill them for dinner. Um, at some point in the next couple minutes, when he was going back to his car. He was kidnapped by this uh, Mercury Marquis. He was seen getting into this Mercury Marquis with two or three other individuals in, and then driving off. But who—that's what I mean. Who would those? Who would those individuals have been that he would have trusted? The, the most likely answer is, uh, and again, Mike can certainly chime in, but I think it's Billy Jackaloni. If Billy said, "Hey, yeah. Tony got hung up. Tony can't make it. We're going to meet somewhere else." He knows Billy. I mean, he's not going to be as apprehensive if he sees Billy Jackaloni. As he would if you see somebody else. Not to be kidnapped, though. You don't have to be a trusted person. Well, you, you gotta know, get in you, the car. You, you could be taken against your will. Yeah, yeah I don't, not, I don't not, think not that Hoffa. Not, 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 in a mob, not in a mob hit. He's too tough. In a mob hit, they, they, he they would have struggled. They rock, and they rock you to, no, they rock you to bed. They rock you to sleep. They, they want you to lower your guard as much as and, possible. And plus, Hoffa's the tough guy. He wouldn't have. He would have. I don't. I don't. I don't believe that. But he think, had a he had a gun in his car too. They right, they intentionally right. intercepted him before he could get to his car to right. grab his gun. I think gun. he got in the car thinking, okay, the meeting with Tony's going to take place here or there, and that's what they whatever they were going to do to him, they did to him then. So uh, you know, yeah, I, th- I think I think that's the most likely explanation. Yeah, I think you have to remember the. Uh, you know, this is a very public place. A lot of people coming and going, so uh, they would want to do it with the least amount of commotion as possible. 
And uh, I don't know that, uh, I agree with Keith, I don't think uh, O'Brien would have been the one uh, uh, to be involved in this and uh, still be walking around today. I think um, uh, Billy uh, could very well have been there. Um, uh, maybe uh, one, one of the New York guys, but uh, as a representative of Tony Pro. Uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is uh, they wouldn't want to cause a lot of commotion. Uh, now, I know the Bureau did go um, after this happened. They did take that um, uh, payphone and uh, uh, didn't find anything forensically on that. They also went back there uh, every day, uh, uh, like a week later, at the same time, and talked to people to see if maybe somebody came to that location on a regular basis, whether it was uh, somebody that worked there, patron or whatever, uh, somebody from the restaurant, uh, in addition to doing the neighborhood, uh, you know, right away. Uh, but they would come back uh, once a week. Uh, and I'm not sure how long that lasted, just to see if they could find somebody that you'd be surprised, even though this generated a lot of uh, publicity. Uh, <laughs> there are people out there that didn't know, oh, really? Yeah, I was wondering, you know, what happened and where it was right here. Uh, so they did talk to people. They talked to hundreds of people and uh, with, without much success. And I think, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that, he did go, uh, uh, he got in that car uh, in, in a cooperative manner. Uh, I think even if they had pointed a gun at him or tried to grab him, uh, he, he would have fought back and would, somebody would have noticed it. And the fact that nobody noticed anything except him getting uh, into a vehicle um, uh, speaks a lot about how low-key they wanted to keep this. And, and, you know, the fact that nobody's talked about what happened is, it's still amazing to me all these years later. So during your guys' investigations for Keith and Mike, um, the Marcus Red Fox, what kind of place was that? Did you enter? Did you go there? Did people? Was that just a known spot? I used to like, go. What I used kind to of go place there. is that? I used to go there. It was a fairly popular. Uh, <clears throat> it was a fairly popular restaurant. There's a related place in Rochester. There was Hills. a it was a chain. Was the, a chain. Ma the Marcus. There was the Marcus it, Red Fox. The Marcus Sly Fox. It's kind of interesting that uh, the same premises is now uh, is now Andiamo, Andiamo's, which is owned which is owned by, by Joe Vacari, and Joe Vacari well, is married into the Toco family. But, so, okay, so I know Andiamo. I'm younger. So is it that was it still that kind of vibe to the place? Yeah, or it was what? probably a little less. It was more, Ameri it was more American food. Yeah, it was darker. darker. It was a it was a dark. You went in there. It was very dark. It was yeah. very dark. Yeah. It was seventies. Yeah, it yeah. was probably no, even in the eighties and nineties. But a steakhouse was it? It was a steakhouse, or it was like continental. It was probably a little cheaper for the time than Nandiamo's is today. Yeah. A little more yeah. of a moderately priced but the restaurant. Ma the Marcus restaurants were very popular on the West Side. I mean, I grew up going to them all the time. Yeah. Um, I actually saw the movie they had a lot Hoffa at a movie theater in the in the same strip mall that Hoffa disappeared. Wow. They had a lot of buffet dining, too, as I recall. Yeah, well, they had a, a Marcus Cafe, right. which was on Adams. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I want to ask a question here. Uh, Mike and Keith were both working for the federal government when the Sheeran theory first surfaced. Right. So Keith was uh, uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and Mike was finishing off uh, uh, his, his three-decade career in the FBI. Do you guys remember hearing this? Oh, yeah, I got a call from yeah. uh, the Oakland County prosecutor. And uh, they had been contacted by Fox News, I believe. And Fox was going to pay for the uh, 
for them to go down into this house and, uh, you know, rip up the floorboards and get the, uh, you know, look for bullet holes and blood and all this sort of stuff. And uh, they asked if uh, we would be interested in going along. And uh, I said, I'd be interested in going along. And, and I talked to Joe Finnegan, who was the head of the organized crime section at the time. We both said, yeah, we'd do that if there's no TV cameras. I said, oh, no, i got to have the TV cameras. I said, you're not going to see me. You're not going to see the FBI. But was your first, when you first heard, there's this new book coming out, and there's this I, team, old teamster named Frank Sheeran, he's saying he killed Hoffa. What's I, the first thing that comes in your head? The same reaction I evidence today. I just uh, But did never, you know the name right away? No. No, wow. I'd never heard of Frank Sheeran. Uh, but I, I did, never... I, went, did, uh, I did get the book and read it, and it didn't change my opinion. Yeah, when I heard the backstory on Frank Sheeran from the... Uh, from the Oakland County prosecutor, I think it was Dave Gorsica at the time. Uh, and then I think somebody from Fox News called me, you know, the same thing. I said, you know, I mean, you can go ahead, but I personally don't credit the story very much. And uh, uh, I didn't, and uh, I still don't. I, I agree with Mike. I I have not seen anything that leads me to change my mind on that story. Mike, what, what was the— uh what what was the consensus in the bureau of the of the guys that were working OC when when you were hearing this back in 0304? Um, I think the same thing that um, uh, you know you, you have to run out every lead. I don't think they consider this a viable lead. I mean, uh, I, I think didn't the state police eventually go down there and yeah, they pulled some floorboards rip, rip and up the floorboards. Yeah, and they never. They found some blood, but the blood didn't match uh, Hoffa yeah, or any were, DNA right, tied so to Hoffa. Finding blood in a house in Detroit is probably yeah. pretty unusual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Com- completely think, or, uh, a total uh, rarity. Anomaly. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, the reaction is, was the same as that uh, when Keith and I had, is that the, um, uh, you know, the guy's a, a blowhard and uh, probably wouldn't be trusted to do uh, do the work because uh, it's like you know people talk about being in combat or being in violent situations. Well, the people who really are don't talk about it. They, they don't talk about those things because they they dredge up bad memories. So uh, a guy like Sharon, if he's talking about all these things he's done, now maybe he beat up a few people, but uh, or was there when somebody was killed. But you know you you don't you don't talk about those things, which is why. You could be trusted to uh, uh, to do that type of work, but uh, I I don't think anybody put much credence in what he had to say. How much of a connection did you guys give to? So Sheeran's connection to this would have been through Russell Buffalino, who was a uh, a very under the radar mob boss who stationed out of Northeast Pennsylvania was someone that wasn't really known. Um, in terms of someone who got a lot of headlines or someone that was a was a name that uh, people that regular uh, run of the mill Joe and Jane Smith would know, but in the in the mob in the '60s and '70s, Russell Buffalino was a bit of a power player. Um, he was uh, related to a made member of the Detroit mob, uh, William Buffalino, who was also the in-house counsel. He was an attorney, and he was also a made member of the, the mafia. Uh, he was first cousins with Russell Buffalino. Frank Sheeran was someone that was a bodyguard and driver for Russell Buffalino. Just kind of going off the Sheeran subject for a second, but how much uh, how, how much of a connection do you think Russell Buffalino played in, in, in the whole Hoffa saga? Well, if... 
assuming, as I do, that Sheeran wasn't involved, I don't think Russell Buffalino was actually brought into it. There would be no reason to. I mean, you got guys in, in Newark who have a beef with the guy. You got people in Detroit, and if the guys in Newark decide we want to take out Jimmy Hoffa in Detroit because we can't get him to come to Newark, they're going to go to the Detroit LCN and they're going to say this is what we want to do, and the Detroit LCN is either going to say yes or no. Do you think the order came from New York, or do you think the order came from Detroit? I think the approval. I think the decision. I think it was the Newark guys wanted to do it. They came to Detroit, uh, right? Said, Can and then we do it. But if you're Newark, who's the first guy you reach out to in Here? Detroit? Tony Jacqueline. Tony Jacqueline. Well, yeah, but even then, I, I would think Tony would have to go up the chain and have a meeting with. Uh, at that point in time, uh, I'm not really Joe's sure. Really, Joe's was really he dead yet? He was still no, alive. He was still no, alive. Right. Joe's no. really was the longtime godfather of the Detroit Mafia. Ruled for 41 years. Was on the the National Commission, one of the most respected uh, mob figures in American history. Uh, he was alive in 1975. Was still kind of the titular head. Right. And his Jack Tocco nep- was his nephew. Jack Tocco was his. Was, was his acting so boss? So I think I think it's quite probable they went to to Zarelli and or Toko and they talked it over and they said this is what we want to do and I think, as as Scott indicated earlier, the Jackalones and the Detroit mob guys were worried about uh, Hoffa doing something that was going to impact on their influence in the Teamsters Union. Their access to the central state, southeast, southwest area, which they used—I mean, that was the golden goose. That was—it was a candy. Was birthing the gold, the golden eggs. Uh, One of the big reasons Hoffa was put into into that place was for them to get access to that pension fund, which they then used to go build what we now know as Las Vegas. I remember talking to a guy. I think his name was Shannon, Dan Shannon, who had actually uh, played football at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, through the key block when uh, when Dick Lynch scored the touchdown to snap Oklahoma's 47-game winning streak in a 7 nothing game. <laughs> but Dan Shannon was a CPA, and he was appointed by the court to look into the Teamsters uh, Union. And he told me he could not believe the fact that the Central State, Southeast, Southwest Area Pension Fund had about 80% of their money invested in real estate, mostly in Las Vegas. And he said, you can't run a pension fund with 80% of your money in, in, in real estate. It it's absolutely the whole pur- insane. It the purpose. Right, of, it's absolutely... Of, of, right, having a fund like that, right. It's absolutely insane if your interest is the, the, uh, the health and welfare of the, the members of the union. If your interest is the health and welfare of the mob that's building the casino. And they were sweetheart loans. They were low-interest loans. Jack Tocco got a $670,000 loan to build the Warren Tennis Club, which is a fairly small amount of money, on a one-page unaudited financial statement from the central states. Now he paid it back. I want to throw this out there and get your take on it. So I have some FBI documents that show me that on the after, or so Hoffa disappeared uh, around 2.45, 3 o'clock. At about 5 o'clock, 5.30, that late afternoon, early evening, the surveillance unit that was at the Southland Athletic Club, which was Tony Giacalone's headquarters, saw Jack Toko show up in the parking lot of the Southland Athletic Club and go have a meeting with Tony Giacalone inside the Southland Athletic Club. Now, for people that really understand what the Detroit mob was at that right, point. Right, Tony Giacalone like, and Jack Toko were not friends. They were not interacting on a daily basis. So the fact that Toko would be coming to visit Giacalone that night and having a meeting, what does that tell you? But Southfield Athletic Club, what was it? I mean, why were these guys, were they were into like uh, playing squash or? Uh, uh, it was yeah. just a place to go hang out. <laughs> and by the way, now it's Fox Sports Detroit. It's the Fox Sports were Detroit building. They were just t- doing Roberto. schwitzes? Or, it's, it's the Fox uh, Sports Detroit uh, building uh, now. Uh, no, I know, I used to work there. Yeah. Uh, 
There may have um, even been some electronic surveillance at one time or another in the Southfield Athletic Club. What would one do at the Southfield Athletic Club? Eat well, and have a workout and then get a massage and a schwitz. And do a schwitz. I, I, I think well, Mike can yes, go uh, ahead. Go ahead, Mike. Now, the, uh, a little background on the ownership there. <laughs> Scott knows this. Lenny Schultz and his kids ran it. And Lenny was a uh, 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 Jewish businessman. <laughs> Use the word businessman with quotes around Jack, it. Yeah, Jack, Jack used to like to use uh, folks like Lenny uh, to shake down other Jewish businessmen. One of the one of their models was uh, shake down a Jew a day, and they would they would get in, they would get into, they they would get into because these Jewish uh, guys like like to hang out with them. They they yeah. like would pay to play, like pay to go to dinner with Tony Jackaloni. So uh, when when they found somebody like Lenny who was uh, uh, a friend of theirs that uh, would, would let them come in, uh, pretty much do what they want, was not going to hassle them, and um, pretty much give them free reign in there. And uh, so they felt comfortable. And Lenny and, was uh, tied to the Purple Gang, um, the, the, old, the old school Jewish mob. He came up in the underworld doing errands for a Purple Gang member by the name of A.B., the agent Zussman, and then eventually gravitated to the uh, Jackaloni's orbit. But he owned the South Athletic Club, but he was also supposed to be at that meeting at the Marcus Red Fox that afternoon. It was a meeting that Jimmy Hoffa was going to take with both Tony Jackaloni, Tony Provenzano, and Lenny Schultz. Okay, well, the other thing you made, the other observation you made is right, and that is that uh, the Jackalonis and the Tocos were never close. Uh, Jack Toco, in particular, did not like the style of Anthony Jackaloni. Jack Toco spent a great deal of time denying the mafia existed or that he was a member of it, and he wanted a very low profile. It's kind of like a lot of the mob bosses in New York's feeling about John Gotti. They did not like Gotti's style. They did not like Gotti's, you know, I'm uh, the, the Teflon Don. Flamboyant. Right. They they wanted, you know, they wanted to be low-key guys. I mean, you had, you know, Vincent the Chin Giganti walking around in his bathrobe <laughs> claiming to be insane. They found that much more appealing than, than the flashiness because they know— Gotti gets publicity, and we don't want publicity. Well, the same thing with the, the Jackalonis. They got publicity. Uh, they were clearly the most well-known organized crime figures in Detroit. And people like Jack Tocco did not like their style and uh, suffered them because they made money but uh, did not particularly appreciate them. So in, your, right. in your opinion, do you believe that they were right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, That I they were—was it a little bit too much flash and too— the, you know, it's it's uh, you know like the just the, look at the jail time they did. Uh, you know, Jack right. Toko did about a year and a half in prison over a fifty-year career. Billy Jacqueline did about thirty years in <laughs> thirty right. years in a five-decade career. It's like the line in The Usual Suspects: "The devil's greatest trick is making you believe he doesn't exist." Well, that's it. The mafia doesn't exist. You know, uh, we we don't know anything about this. I mean, when Jack Toko's when they showed the movie Your Silent Partner. In this Gross Point school system, which was a movie made by Vince Biasani, who was the uh, head of the Michigan State Organ Attorney General's Organized Crime, which talked about mob infiltration of legitimate businesses, it mentioned Toko. Well, his kids saw the movie and he went crazy. He filed a lawsuit. 
Well, Jack Tocco would sue anyone that mentioned his name for about 20 years. He filed the lawsuit, and I remember, you know, uh, Frank Kelly was the attorney general, and he was very upset about the law school and Vince lawsuit, and Vince kept saying, don't worry about it, it's not going to go anywhere. And it went on for a couple of years, and then came the day when they were going to take Jack Tocco's deposition, because when you file a civil suit, you have to be deposed, and they decided to drop the case. So with with Mike and, and, and Keith, can I ask you guys, reading the documents... That uh, go to, going back to Chucky O'Brien, that he was he was staying with some people at the time, or he was he was li- he was staying at uh, at, uh, at a estate on Maple Road, about Ma- at Maple and Inkster, right. which I was about it was a Frank Frank Adele's place. Frank, yeah. Uh, yeah, the name Adele comes up a lot, but be, be right. it Marvin or Frank. Uh, what what were those guys? Is there any stories about them? Um, I'm not sure of their connection with. Uh, um, they were tied in the labor union, o- I believe. O- O'Brien, yeah. Um, uh, I, I think uh, it was a um, it was not too far from where the uh, it was about a mile away. Marcus was. Yep. Uh, there, there's some speculation that maybe uh, they went went over there, um, or Hoffa would would go over there. But other than the fact that Chucky was there and staying there, um, I don't think uh, there was much more than that. Um, uh, what was their connection? Why? But why were they friends? Uh, you know? O'Brien and them. I, yes. I think, uh, like, like we mentioned, through the I uh, knew through the the uh, uh, Teamsters through labor unions. So let's. Um, I want to start. Uh, uh, kind of finish this up by kind of going a little rapid fire, throwing some theories at you that have been out there over the years, and just getting your quick takes on them. So. Um, Obviously, we have all the crazy theories that we're not going to go over the Meadowlands. We kind of touched on for a second. Um, but let's talk about the 2006. There was a dig in Commerce Township uh, at a, a piece of property known as the Hidden Dreams Ranch. Uh, it was owned by a former Teamsters Union goon by the name of Roland McMasters, who was very at one time very close to Jimmy Hoffa uh, and was someone that was, you know, for a non-Italian was very trusted. And this Hidden Dreams Ranch was allegedly um, someone, uh, an FBI informant, claimed that he was on the property the day that Hoffa disappeared and saw uh, a group of people led by McMasters coming to uh, bury Hoffa on that property. The FBI set up shop there in the summer or late spring of 06, and I think they were there for about a week. They did a lot of digging and didn't end up finding anything. Um, what's your What was your take on, on that dig, Keith? Mine would be, uh, you know, I, I understood why the Bureau did what they did because, uh, as, as Mike has sort of said, you have to follow out and pursue almost any uh, legitimate or even far-fetched but not obviously uh, insane idea. But Roland McMaster was a, a pretty formidable guy, and he was a very powerful figure in the Teamsters Union Physically imposing guy. He's about six six, weighed about you know two hundred and eighty pounds. He was a pretty scary looking guy, but I'm saying to myself, if I'm Roland McMaster, am I going to let them bury this guy on my property? I mean, he had enough muscle to say, hey, he was not uh, uh, some kind of guy they could just say do anything. And I'm thinking to myself, he's going to say no. You're not putting this guy on my property. So I, for that reason, I. I was somewhat suspicious of it because I thought McMaster would be smart enough, given the fact that he was a Teamster official, given the fact that he knew Hoffa, he knew all the figures involved, to say, not in my place. I mean, that, that was just my thought process. But 
Um, you know, I don't blame them for following the uh, the lead down, but I it was one of those things. Where they took it, a lot of heat because I think they, they, they ended up spending out like five million dollars, and they had to uh, remove a, a barn that was on the property. Yeah, I, and, I would have placed the, placed the odds at less than two percent if you were asking me. Yeah, to, I, uh, to yeah, Mike. What was your take I, on that dig? I agree. Uh, well, uh, I've talked to some of the people who who were out there during that time, and it was you talk about a. Yeah. Um, uh, a drain on manpower uh, because they had to have uh, you know 24 hour uh, uh, operation out there. I don't think they dug for 24 hours, but they couldn't contaminate. Everybody would come in and contaminate the scene, so they had to secure it. They had people out there all the time, uh, and I don't know if they were working 12 hour shifts, but it's it, it was a um, I don't know if it was a complete waste of time, but I, you know most of the guys that are out there said it was you know, a waste of their time. They had better things to do. But, you know, when they say <laughs> that you're going to do it and uh, no questions asked, then you're you're kind of stuck. And you really do have to follow leads. I I don't know that, um, you know, uh, Hoffa's body survived the uh, the ordeal that he was put through. Um, in, in other words, there may not have been a, have been a body to bury. Um, one of the theories that um, the guy talked to me about was, and I think I mentioned this to you, Scott. There used to be a uh, uh, a banquet house called the Raleigh House down at Ten Mile in Southfield, or Ten Mile in Telegraph. It used to have a big incinerator behind it, and um, uh, it's long since gone. But it was there with the big stacks, uh, big chimneys, and uh, 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 you know it would have been a place. And and the gangsters like to go there. Uh, and I, I can't remember who owned it, but. Um, uh, it certainly would have been a place where if Hoffa was uh, disposed of uh, and not buried somewhere, they could have rolled them up in a uh, in a tarp or in a rug and uh, carted it in there that afternoon and um, uh, uh, incinerated the body, and there wouldn't be anything left uh, uh, to bury. What about the uh, uh, Bagnasco funeral home? Is that was that a poten- on the east side? Was that a potential site for um, uh, incineration? The Bagnascos were tied to the Toko family. Uh, they, they have a, a lot of mafia lineage dating back to the 1920s. Yeah, I I think as as the kind of the undercurrent here that you know this this thing, uh, even though they didn't realize the heat it was going to generate, I think they tried to keep it very low key and and that the uh, 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 the circle of people that knew this knew what happened to a, a very uh, select few. And uh, anytime you, you involve more and more people, um, you, you run the risk of uh, uh, somebody finding out uh, or somebody talking about it. Because everybody has a friend that they want to talk to about. You never guess what I heard. You never guess what I saw. Okay. Um, so I, I, I think that probably uh, uh, anything outside that real circle uh, of people we were talking about would be would be uh, tenuous at best. All right, just two more theories I want to get your opinion on. Um, In 2013, the FBI dug at a piece of property that was once owned by the Toko brothers, Jack Toko and Tony Toko. They were sent there by Tony Zerilli, the former underboss and the first cousin to Jack and Tony Toko. Um, Tony Zerilli was in prison the time Hoffa disappeared. He claims that when he came out of prison, Tony Jackaloni told him that Hoffa was taken and killed at this piece of 
this piece of farm property um, in Oakland County. I believe it's Oakland Township at the corner of like Buell and Adams Road. Um, the FBI was out there for about a day or two digging and didn't find anything. What's your take on that dig? Well, I think the first thing is, uh, although, as you, you pointed out, uh, Anthony Zarelli was in jail at the time, he is at least a person who, if he says he knows, you have to take into account the fact that he's the kind of person that might know. Uh, given his uh, his father's uh, position, given the fact that he was a member of the His father Detroit was Joe Zarelli, the longtime godfather. Right. Given that, you have to take into account the fact that he might know. Um but again, the same reaction. Uh, Jack Tolkien is going to say, you, you're going to bury this guy on my property? I mean, that's, <laughs> it, it's laughable. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, they would bury it on, you know, be much better off driving up into the woods of northern Michigan and burying it on a piece of state land than sticking the guy, if you're going to bury him, into uh, Jack's property. I, again, I, I given the fact that the information came from Joe Zarelli, I think the Bureau out of uh, an abundance of caution, had to pursue it. But given the fact that Toko once owned the property and owned the property at the time Hoffa disappeared, it struck me as a ludicrous Jack Toko and Tony Zerilli were the mob princes of Detroit. They took over the family from their fathers in the 1960s, but then had a big falling out after a bus in the 1990s that Keith was responsible for. He was the prosecuting attorney on Operation Gamtax, which took down the whole uh, hierarchy of the Detroit Mafia and led to this big uh, beef between uh, Tony Zerilli and Jack Toko that I eventually led to them doing a dig at Toko's property. Last uh, theory I want to throw out you, and then we're going to finish this off, would be Dan Moldea, the kind of the godfather of Hoffa research, um, was has written all the most seminal works on, on the Hoffa disappearance and the investigation into um, the Hoffa disappearance. He believes uh, from dealing with a source of his in the, in the Genovese crime family who's now dead, um, by the name of Ralph Moscato, who was a high-ranking member of the Genovese in New Jersey. He owned both a, uh, a trucking company called Gateway Transportation as well as a, uh, a landfill, um, I believe, in Union City, New Jersey, or Jersey City. I think it was a Jersey, uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, Maldea claimed on the 50-year anniversary or on the 40-year anniversary of the Hoffa disappearance, uh, Dan came out with a theory that he was provided by Ralph Moscato on Moscato's deathbed or around the time Moscato was going to die, uh, told Dan to kind of hold it until he, uh, until he died. And he claims that he was responsible for transporting Hoffa's body from where he was killed in Detroit um, via a gateway transportation truck to his landfill um, in Jersey City, and that's where Hoffa was disposed of. Any thoughts on that? You know, it's it doesn't strike me as impossible. Uh, I would want to know how the driver who was driving along with Jimmy Hoffa's dead body, when everybody in the United States was looking for him, across state lines, it. right across state right. lines. But if it was a trucking company, you might have some cover on that. Uh, again, I I personally have always favored the central sanitation uh, theory, but uh, which was a mob-owned. Uh, sanitation company in Hamtramck, so we're staying in the local area, that among other things had these giant compactors that would crush two, three thousand pounds of cardboard at one time. And people were not thinking of DNA in, in, in 1970. There was. It didn't exist. So you didn't worry about that. And if you ran a body through that and then a couple of, a couple of tons more of cardboard, there probably would be nothing that would show up. That was owned by uh, by Toco and by, Vital- no, Pete Vitale. Pete Vitale and my theory Vitale. on something like that it need to be something that could happen within the hour. And what? then and then and then central sanitation burned to the ground. 
Now, let me, now, I, there I, was an arson at Central I Sanitation about, this for a, about a year or two later. With the Joey Jackaloni car and the you know the hairs that were found, does that always stay in DNA? Now with the, with DNA now, are they able to do anything with that or not really? I mean, the, the fact is, it's it's not the you know they have different standards of DNA and the percentage is somewhat lower. But the problem is a hair. I mean, if somebody had been at Jimmy's house and put their coat down on Jimmy and picked up a hair... And One in a million, the, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there are explanations for a couple of hairs that would be difficult to, uh, to close all the doors on if you were trying to build a prosecution on that. You know, skin, blood, different situation. But uh, hair, as I said, you know, did Jimmy ever get in the car? Did Chucky drive him somewhere? Who knows? Yeah, right. Mike, right. being a Jersey guy, what's your thought on the Jersey theory? Well, I did have the benefit of talking to my dad about it because he was, like I say, in Newark at that time. And uh, once again, he went out on, on uh, these digs. Now, some of the digs that they went out on, did they did find bodies of uh, New York hits, New Jersey hits. So obviously um, there was some, uh, uh, you know, legacy there. I mean, they did like to bury people in the uh, in the Meadowlands and the uh, uh, swamps there. Um I just don't know that they would take that risk of bringing it back, you know, because everything that was developed was was an East Coast of, of an East Coast genesis. In other words, uh, Provenzano and those guys, uh, Tony Pro was mad at them, and uh, you know they wanted to do something. They didn't want to get him back in the union. I don't know that you would bring similar to what we talked about burying a body on, a, on some land that there's uh, a paper trail that you owned way back when this happened. Um, so I don't know that uh, certainly it's possible, uh, but I don't know how probable it would have been because, like you say, you're you're, you're going across uh, 600 miles, you're going through a couple states. Suppose a truck gets in an accident. Suppose uh, you get stopped by the police for some reason. Um, suppose you know they they find out what's going on, and, uh, uh, and so it's it's just it just seems like they were taking an awful risk moving it. I know one of the things that I had heard um, uh, some time ago, I don't know if we talked about this, Scott, was uh, the fact that um, uh, they, he was buried uh, down in um, uh, some land owned by Tony... Um, Palzola. Uh, Tony Palzola by, by his, his father uh, uh, down there in, in uh, uh, the Taylor area, and that he'd been buried on some property there. Um, so Tony Palazzolo was a longtime Detroit mob figure, right. was someone that was uh, brought into the Hoffa conspiracy, at least publicly, by Tony Zerilli when he debriefed with the FBI in 2013. He named uh, Palazzolo as the driver of the car that kidnapped Hoffa, as well as one of the killers. Palazzolo himself has been caught on an FBI wire claiming that he put Hoffa's body through his sausage auger at his uh, headquarters, the Detroit Sausage Company, down in uh, Eastern Market, and he's been a guy that's kind of, or he just died in the last couple of months, but before he died, he was someone that ran the downriver area of Detroit. He didn't well, sell yeah. any of that sausage. And his father, his father. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. Uh, his, his father, too, was a, was a, a made guy. A big, a big hitter, yeah. And uh, so I, I would think that, you know, once again, they're not going to want to. Uh, uh, once, once he was uh, killed, not want to take it too far, and uh, it just seems to me they'd be taking an awful chance taking him uh, halfway across the country. So, so let's so just they can bury, you know, bury him in 
in the uh, Meadowlands or that area. So let's just quickly go around the table and end this by giving uh, each person give maybe a five to ten second rundown of what they think exactly happened. Let's start with Roberto. Roberto? Well, I mean, burying just seems crazy to me when you have all those assets of uh, garbage and and ways to grind things. <laughs> it seems to me that 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 could be way faster than and and you know non-tracing than burying. So, Jimmy, uh, the um, central sanitation. Um, I think that he was uh, either crushed or incinerated there. I believe in that theory. Yeah, I believe uh, that he was taken to Carlo Cotta's house, um, murdered there, and then taken to Central Sanitation and most likely uh, incinerated at Central Sanitation. I would think that uh, I'm not sure where they uh, took him after they murdered him, but I I do think Central Sanitation is an extremely reasonable option. But I I agree with everybody who's indicated that the plans to dispose of his body hundreds of miles away from where it uh, took place just seems to me to be an unnecessary risk for people who are very cautious, clearly playing this out very carefully. I mean, I'm sure they knew what they were going to do with the body before the body was uh, was there. It wasn't uh, after the fact. The whole thing was planned out. And I think they wanted to get the body out of a recognizable state, either ground up or burned or crushed before. I mean, the, the FBI didn't really know about it for 24 hours. I have a feeling... The body was gone before the FBI mm-hmm. and everybody knew about it when Mrs. Hoffer reported her husband. Did you have a, do you have a, a gut death. feeling where they took him? I think central sanitation. I mean, the most took likely. him to kill him. No, I don't. I mean, the Carl Licata location clearly makes sense. Whether they even just got you know somewhere on the road and you know shot him in the back of the head or, or, or while they were driving, I, I don't know. I, I, and le- the only people who know are the people who are there, and they haven't told us. Mike, last, uh, yeah, I, what's your thoughts? I, I, I tend to agree that uh, he was taken someplace close. Lakatas is probably the uh, most logical spot, and that he was uh, killed there and transported uh, someplace uh, where, where the body could be incinerated. And um, Because you have to realize, too, that uh, these guys weren't uh, you know, psychics. They, they didn't know who Hoffa talked to, uh, how many people knew who he was meeting, how long it was going to be before he was reported missing, how long it was going to be before the cops started looking for him, uh, if if the uh, federal government was going to get involved. So I don't think they were going to screw around uh, uh, very long. I I think within a couple hours, this thing was all said and done, and they were, uh, you know, they were on their merry way uh, because they, they didn't want, uh, they, they had no idea of knowing how long it was going to take for uh, an actual investigation to begin. They probably figured 24 hours, but well, still, uh, I, I, I think they were probably worried about that. Well, this was epic. I, I you know, we couldn't have had a more comprehensive discussion analysis of the, uh, of this case than we did with Keith and Mike. Um, last thing I'll ask is: Does it shock you that we're sitting here four and a half decades later and no charges have been brought, no one's ever been arrested? Is this something that if I would have told you back in 1975 that we'd be sitting here in almost the year 2020 and we'd have really no more answers that we did than we did then? Well, if you if you ask me, I mean, uh, probably within five years, I would have said I, they're never going to solve it. And and I also think, as Mike pointed out, uh, the the unexpected consequence was it was really the beginning of. Uh, a full-scale war across the country on the mob. People started to use the RICO statute more than they had before. 
And the collateral damage done to the mafia as a result of this was probably not worth anything they would have gotten out of the decision to kill Jimmy Hoffa. But um, I, I, I'll just leave you with this. This shows this is not a criticism of the behavioral science unit of the FBI, but somebody <laughs> told me once that the behavioral science unit told the Detroit FBI that the most likely person to crack and talk about the Jimmy Hoffa disappearance was Vito Billy Jacaroni, <laughs> which I thought— That's ludicrous. That's every agent that I know that knew Billy thought exactly the same thing. The, the people who did this were a select group of people, very small, uh, and they were, in my opinion, all made guys who are old school guys who would drop dead before they would give up something like this. That's my, and Mike, that's why, you know, the old, you know, uh, two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Well, right. when you have the omerta and they actually believe it, it's possible to keep a secret. Mike, do they ever solve this case? Is this case ever brought to justice? Uh, no, I, I think, uh, uh, given the fact nobody's really talked about it and that all the major players are, um, are deceased. Um, I don't, I don't think, I think this would be like, uh, uh, DB Cooper, you know, everybody yeah. talks about it. They knew it happened, but, um, you know, it's, it's never going to be solved. I don't think there's any, anything out there that can surface, uh, in the years to come that, I mean, if you look at those files, <laughs> it did a hell of a lot of work. And and uh, if there was something to be found, they would have found it. Um, and uh, so, and obviously, forty some years, fifty years, um, it's just it's just never going to get uh, uh, the, the you know the the attention that it did right after. Because let's face it, you know most most cases this magnitude gets solved right away within the first couple of weeks. And as time goes by, it just uh, lessens the odds of uh, anything being. Uh, uh, being found that's going to bring it to a logical conclusion. So I, I would doubt that anything's going to happen. The perfect murder. Well, we unless we can get Bob Mueller to begin an investigation. Perhaps we'll bring we'll bring Mueller to Detroit and he can open up a whole new investigation. We forget about Trump and start on Hoffa. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, guys. This was awesome. Right. This might have been my favorite uh, podcast episode we've done so far, and that that's saying a lot because we've had some great guests on. Keith, you're the best, uh, best and brightest. Uh, like I said. Uh, you know, when you're talking about uh, the mob busters in the in the history of Michigan, Keith Corbett's the first name that that should come to your mind, and then Mike Carone, just uh, everything you want from an FBI agent, and uh, just uh, you know the epitome of a great guy and uh, a class individual. We thank you a lot for coming on board, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. Uh, we'll see you next time on the OG. Hope we gave you some uh, added context and, and and perspective on the Jimmy Hoffa murder. 44-year anniversary coming up next week. We'll see you next time on The OG.